Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ed Surge Extra Podcast. My name is Betsy Corcoran. I'm CEO and co-founder of Ed Surge. This episode is one of three spotlight interviews I did as a part of our State of Ed Tech special report. You can check out the full coverage and play with some interactive elements on our site at edsurge.com or try the short link, which is bit.ly backslash edtechfinance. In this episode of the Ed Surge podcast, I sit down with Brian Dixon, who's a partner at Kapoor Capital. Kapoor Capital took root around 2009 when Mitch Kapoor and his wife, Frida Kapoor Klein, began making private investments in companies that they thought could have a positive social mission. By around 2012, they developed a core investing thesis around impact investing, and they're involved in many sectors other than education. Brian joined the firm as an intern in 2011, went and got his MBA, and now he's returned and he's really growing the fund. This past January, Kapoor Capital unveiled what it calls its Founders Commitment, And that's a program that aims to get startups to bake in diversity and inclusion from the very moment of the first investment. So far, about 73 of Kapoor's 163 portfolio companies have signed the pledge. And going forward, all of them will. Tell me your name and your title, your position here. Sure. So my name is Brian Dixon, and I'm a partner here at Kapoor Capital. Great. And how long have you been at Kapoor? So I joined in... Uh, the summer of 2011, actually as a pre-MBA intern, um, and, and came back another summer as an intern, and then as an associate full-time, uh, then to partner, or then to principal, and then to partner. Um, so um, had a chance to see the organization grow and the portfolio grow um, over that period of time. Perfect. And um, tell me how long uh, Kapoor has been investing. I mean, yeah. Mitch, I know, has invested yeah. forever. But then he really kind of turned it into a proper fund with yep. a, a real thesis. And so when did it really become a fund? Yeah, so, so really uh, 2009, 2010. And, and it's kind of murky because, as you mentioned, Mitch was doing angel investing and then brought on um, other partners uh, and really created an entity, uh, Caper Capital. Um, since the time I've been on board, um, there's been a, a lot of new initiatives. Um, one... We didn't start off doing impact investing, mm-hmm. um, and in 2012, uh, that was a core part of our thesis, uh, impact investing. And most recently, which I'll get into later on, uh, which is our founders' commitment. Um, so really interesting times, um, and having a chance to work with Mitch and Frida uh, to create a fund like Kepler Capital is just, just exciting. That's great. Let's actually start um, right there. Let's describe where the fund is right now. I'd love to take a minute to hear about your investing thesis, yeah. and then also some statistics about you know how much money do you have under management, how many yeah. companies you've invested in, that sort of thing. Great. Let's so start with the thesis. Um, start with the thesis. So um, at Caper Capital, we believe um, we invest in seed stage impact companies, um, and everybody has a different meaning of impact. So I, I will. Uh, be sure to kind of give you ours, um, which comes down to core businesses where that close gaps of access or opportunity um, and that are solid venture-backed businesses, venture-scale businesses. I mean, I say that piece because I think sometimes there's a misconception that if you're doing impact, you're not focused on returns. 
Um, and we believe that you can do both. Um, and one of the things that we look for in entrepreneurs is really their lived experience. Um, why are they creating the pro uh, product? Um, is there something personal um, to it? And that's pan out pretty well for us because I think we attract entrepreneurs who um, start a company for, for mission purpose. Um, and that's a real great business. And they feel like Kimber Capital is, is a great fit to really help them get started in their seed round. Um, we do about 20 of these investments per year. Um, our average investment size is anywhere from 100K to 250K. And a large percent of those historically have been in EdTech. And I think that's why uh, we're huge fans of EdSearch uh, as, as a source. Um, and, you know, when I ran the numbers for 2015, um, 7 out of 17 of the investments were EdTech related. Um, and I spend most of my time uh, on the EdTech companies as well. Although we do other sectors as well. So we do health, um, we do education, um, we do fintech, so financial tech, really looking at um, the underbanked, underserved, um, and you know we all we end up once or twice a year doing maybe a hardware deal, kind of thrown in there. So, yeah. how many companies overall do you have in your portfolio now? Yeah, we're uh, above 130 oh plus gosh. companies, <laughs> um, and you know we have a pretty rapid pace at seed stage. Um, but yeah, that that's kind of it. And you don't do any follow-on investments. These are all seed stage? So those are all seed stage, but we do do follow-on, actually. So um, if you if we invest at the seed stage, typically there's a, hopefully a Series A. Yeah. Uh, and we, we're we not a lead for the Series A, but we like to get involved mm -hmm. uh, with the company. So uh, that might be, if we do a check, maybe 250 k for the seed, um, we might do a follow-on check with maybe between 100 and 250 but not the you know, $1 million check. Perfect. Or a $3 million check, they'll lead a series. Out. And do you say how much money you have under management then? No. Um, so based upon our structure, um, of our LP structure, we don't have kind of a dollar amount under management. But what I, what I can say is um, we do have a, a $40 million pledge, which uh, is focused, 25 of that is focused on um, Caper Capital. And with an overall goal of building out a diverse and inclusive entrepreneur pipeline, um, and that's in direct investment. So over the next three years, we'll be investing $8.3 million. 2015, 16, and 17. 15, 16, and 17, you'll invest yeah. $8.3 million? Yeah, for like you. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, okay. And that's, uh, just so that I'm 100% clear, that's $8.3 million uh, in each of those years or across those three years? Uh, in each of those in years. In each of those yeah. years. Cool. Yeah, so okay. it's, a, it's a $25 million over gotcha. three years. Perfect. Yeah. Um, and do you have any, last question on the, yeah. the structure of the fund, do you have LPs? Obviously, Mitch and Frida yeah. are your principal yeah. funders. Yeah. Um, do you have other LPs as well? No, so it, it, Just it's them. Mitch and Frida. Yeah. Go Lotus. <laughs> um, what's different, Brian, about investing in ed tech yeah. than other areas? Yeah, I mean, I think why we do EdTech and kind of what excites us about EdTech is um, it really comes out to educational outcomes, right? Uh, um, we want to change. We want to see um, students and teachers have a level playing field um, to, to learn. Um, and, you know, education is, is core to anyone's development. And we understand that. We know that um, just by going to visit schools, it's not the same everywhere. And that everybody doesn't have the same access um, 
to, to those opportunities. So we believe, you know, EdTech is not necessarily the answer, but a part of the answer. Um, and there's no, our, our thesis is that there's no silver bullets. Um, you know, it's still going to require great teachers um, in the classroom. And EdTech allows those teachers to potentially scale what they're doing. Um, so yeah, that, I think that's what's different is um, this isn't an experiment in some ways. These are children's lives, and, and we understand the importance um, of getting a solid education. Right, right, right. Is there, you've been at this now, as yes. you said, for quite a while, yes. since 2009. And yes. in some ways, this boom really began around 2009, 2010. Yes. What would you tell Brian of 2009 that you've learned over the course of that time? Great question. I, I, I think, you know, coming on at 2011, right? So mm -hmm. the, the boom already started, um, and it seemed like every week you, you just see, saw more and more ed tech companies. Um, I think what I would have said to myself back then was make sure you they're actually building real businesses. Um, I think that uh, it's great, you know, that there's more activity in education. And I think it's great that there's a chance that uh, we can actually move some of these, these numbers of um, failing schools to, to not so much failing schools and to, to, to great schools. Um, but there's also a piece of investing that comes down to is this a sustainable business? Um, and business models are important. Um, of, you know, when you think about education, you have the student, uh, you have the teacher, uh, you have the school, and then you have the parent. Mm -hmm. And in most cases, you have to charge one, right? And we, <laughs> we don't want to charge students, right? Right. Um, and especially when you look at schools, we don't want to charge, you know, low-income schools or districts or, or Title I, et cetera. So the question is, well, well, who pays for it or how do you kind of build those businesses, which are, which are hard problems to solve. Um, but I, I think business models are important because we've made investments in, across the board. I think you'll see that sometimes they're great companies for what their mission is, um, but they also have to kind of figure out a way to stay alive. Um, and that's, that's just the nature of startups, to be honest. Um, but you've got to have a way that whether it's becoming a profitable company or more so in the venture, um, in the venture model, which is you raise a seed only to go out with some traction to go raise a Series A. And if you can't go out and raise a Series A, then you're you're in a tough tough position. What about building revenue itself? Yes. I mean, yes. we've seen a lot of companies start to say, "Well, maybe I should be more bootstrapped. Maybe yes. I should be charging from day one yes. instead of doing the big freemium thing." Yeah. Where, how do you see that evolving over the last couple of years? Well, it's a trade-off, right? I mean, if you start day one charging, um, you're going to limit your growth, right? If you go freemium, great growth, but the question will be, is there a model, right? And I, I think it's, it's a hybrid of um, what we typically invest in and what we're drawn to is really looking at the companies that might start off as a freemium because you can check the box of, is there a demand for this product? Um, which is great. Okay, there's a demand for the product. People are willing to use it and invest in it as a free tool. However, down the road, there's a, a, a paid product or, you know, the, the, the part of the, the freemium um, where you, you pay. And um, it's the companies that kind of get around that bend of, hey, we've got a free product, and then we go to a paid product, and it's priced at the right point where, where schools and teachers can adopt it. That's when things get 
pretty interesting pretty quickly. Um, an example of this would be, I, I think, New Zealand. Um, if you look at kind of what New Zealand did, I mean, they started off with this free product and homeroom teachers loved it. Um, and and, and uh, it was easy to adopt into the classroom. But then they followed it up with a, with a premium product where you had to pay to get some access to, you know, maybe it's news articles, the assessments, etc. cetera. Uh, and they found a way to, to build a real business um, with that model. Um, and most recently, they raised, raised the Series B by, uh, by Climate, right? I think last year. So that was, that was an example of you started as a free product, you made some revenue along the way at scale, and then you got the funding hopefully needed to take it to the next level. Got it, got it. So what are um, three things, three is a wonderful random number, <laughs> but what are a couple of things that you really look for? You've started to name them, but, yeah. but maybe you could just kind of tick them off. When you're looking at an investment, I'm sure you yeah. get a ton of proposals across your desk yeah. every week. What are you looking for in those proposals? Yeah, so um, last year we got over 2,500 uh, pitches. And we did, <laughs> you know, 17. All right, so um, there's a lot that you kind of use to filter out. But I'll say in general, it's hard, right, of being on the entrepreneur's kind of in their shoes, literally, and creating products and trying to make a difference or solve a problem, um, you realize that they try to, as a founder, you try to get as far as possible with the least amount of money or kind of the resources that you have available. Um, but I think it comes down to, to your question of what are the three things. So one, team, right? Of that early on, um, I think you've got to have the full team, quote-unquote full team, meaning somebody to have the product vision of what is this thing, um, somebody to actually build it, and that might be the same person. Um, but how do you build it? And then a third person of how do you get people on board? Um, so this could be uh, uh, acquiring customers, uh, marketing, etc. cetera. Um, and, and is there a viral loop in there to see this thing kind of grow? Um, that's kind of the core team we're looking for when we make an investment. Um, the second thing I think is, is kind of the product, right? Of, well, what is it and, and who finds value from it, right? And, and in the lean startup world, it, it's, it comes down to you can have an MVP or minimum viable product. Um, so it doesn't have to be world-class tech, right? You can just show a demand for something that's built and it creates value for hopefully the students and the teachers, et cetera, all the players who are involved. Um, so we like to try out the products and kind of see what's there. Um, see what problem does it actually solve, and especially in EdTech, well, going back to the fundamental premise of what we're doing is, how does this actually change education outcomes, um, and does it make the gap uh, larger, right, or does it um, close that gap, and we're looking for tools that um, at scale can close gaps. I think the third is, is um, especially in this day and age, is traction, right? Um, you know, maybe five years ago or even ten years ago, you can raise some money on, um, we've got a team and we've got a beta, closed beta, right? I think nowadays you've got to have traction as well as a part of that. So we want to talk to the customers. Um, we want to talk to teachers using it who, who say it's so great um, and really see, well, how is this a game changer? And I think that traction piece in the last five years has been so important uh, for, for raising money. Perfect. Yeah. And what nixes a deal for you? Great question. I mean, one, it's um, 
no impact, right? Of, of, of if if it's you know we always use this example of a tutoring platform, right? Of you're bringing tutoring from in person to online, um, and it might be I don't know. Let's say in person it's a hundred dollars an hour, um, online it's thirty dollars an hour. Well, great. There's a cost savings of seventy dollars, but we also know that there's a student out there, many students out there who can't afford thirty dollars an hour, right? And and for those students, they're kind of left out, right? So they they've got now. Um, the students who can afford it, if you're on free and reduced lunch, you're just kind of getting pushed even further back. Um, so if we see a company where that's the type of structure they have set up, it's probably not a good fit for us. Um, I think the second is we're just going to grow. We're going to launch a product. It's going to be great, and we'll figure it out later. <laughs> I bet you hear that a fair amount. You do. And, and, uh, just believe. Just believe. And there is a part of investing that is belief, for sure. Yeah. But... You know, at the point where you've got the traction, you've got users, you've got engaged users, but nobody's even remotely would ever pay for whatever the service is, that's a huge problem because we know that those companies are going to have a hard time when they go to a Series A or Series B investor who's looking for that uh, monetization model. It just won't be there. Perfect. Let's talk a little bit about the founder's commitment and about the backstory for that. You introduced it in January. Mm -hmm. What role is that playing for you, for your decisions, yeah. and what role do you want to see it play in the industry? Yeah, great question. Um, we're excited and proud to be really the first firm to kind of come out with a founder's commitment. Um, where did it come from? We'll start there. If you look at the tech industry, it does not look like America. Um, the large companies such as the Googles, the Facebooks, etc., have all released their numbers, and they're low. Um, Low to the point where it's about two or three percent for many of these companies. Um, two or three percent of women, uh, minorities, well, sort of anybody. people of color, and then and, and, and women is, is a bit better. Women's a bit better, but right, people. But of color. but still not even close to what uh, America looks like. So we have an opportunity to invest in these companies at a really early stage, which is exciting. And, and these companies hopefully turn into larger companies, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the the premise was if you could. Bake in diversity and inclusion from day one, um, when they raise their seed round or even hopefully before that, that these companies would look totally different uh, at the point where they're raising a Series C or Series D or, or even going public. Um, and that was why we created the, the Founders Commitment. The interesting part about it is that um, when we launched in, 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 in January, it was focused on the new investments for 2016. So, but we opened it up to portfolio companies pretty much in the whole portfolio. 73 companies in the existing portfolio that didn't have to do this, that um, when we made the investment, this wasn't a part of, of the investment at all, opted to sign it. Nice. Because they believed in it and, and, and they wanted to build a workplace that was just inclusive for everybody. Um, and I think that that's interesting. Um, really interesting that it's a good sign, and we've had other firms reach out to to kind of discuss um, incorporating the founders' commitment. And Mitch and Frieder uh, wrote a piece on, on Medium um, to address that. We've seen other companies reach out that are not in our portfolio that says, "Hey, we love what you're doing. We want to build a diverse and inclusive workforce," and um, trying to figure out ways to try to incorporate those folks. But for today. Um, where it stands, it's only for K for capital um, 
companies. For, what, what happens if someone doesn't live up to the commitment? Yeah, great, great, great question. So it's not like we can take our investment back, <laughs> right? So, um, that's, not, that's not the goal, and we have no intention to do that. Mm -hmm. um, startups are hard, right? And you hear this all the time. And um, if you look at the founder's commitment, and, and I'll kind of go through the four parts of it, but if you look at that and compare it to even the business model of where a company should, quote unquote, should be, um, on paper or what's in the in the slide in the slide deck, right? It's Q1, we're gonna do this, Q2 is this, and you know, by the end of the year it's a hockey stick, right? It's kind of the same story. Well, many of those companies fall short. This is no different. Um, there are gonna be companies that exceed the, their goals and there are companies that are gonna come short. But we think that the important part is to at least have goals of this is where we are today. And this is where we want to be. And here's a plan of how we kind of get there. Um, I probably should spend a, just a little bit of time explaining sure. um, for folks who don't know yeah. kind of what it is. The first part is setting goals. Um, and, that, and that's, you know, it, it's kind of putting something on paper um, that we can kind of measure against. Um, and this is not only for diversity. Inclusiveness means, you know, women. This could mean um, just creating a workplace where everybody feels welcome. And so that, that's really important. I think the second is investing in tools um, to mitigate bias. This might be looking at your hiring process of kind of where you recruit from. Uh, this might be the interview process uh, and implementing structured interviews or the Rooney Group. Um, so there's many ways that, they, uh, that companies can actually invest in their tools and kind of look at what they're doing. Uh, the third is volunteering. We're big on providing opportunities. Um, if you're an ed tech company, working with low-income school districts, well, when's the last time everybody in the office has actually gone to a low-income school? Uh, to kind of see the technology being used at these schools or the CART system being used at these schools. Um, and we believe that that helps you create better tools for those schools. And the last is really just educating, educating yourself and kind of the company on, on um, mitigating bias and kind of what resources out there um, could these companies use in our portfolio just to be better, um, whether it's creating the workplace, whether it's hiring, whether it's recruiting, etc. Um, so really, really exciting. We're kind of just getting started, but um, we're proud to say that 73 companies have signed up and hopefully more. Um, and like I said, for 2016 investments, all 2016 moving forward will we'll sign up for the committee. Perfect. That's great. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Coming back to kind of benchmarks for success, yes. you've touched on a lot of these. There yeah. are financial benchmarks, there are impact benchmarks, there's the commitment, the founder's commitment uh, benchmarks. But, you know, what um, what is really your long-term criteria for success? And when do you want to see these companies hit it? And I know it's yesterday, but yeah. really, when do you really want to see them hit it? Yeah, I mean... Um the typical venture model is between five to seven years, something will happen. Um, so uh, that something hopefully is an exit of some sort. That might be from M&A, that might be IPO. Um, but unfortunately, you know, as, as, as startups go, a lot of times that will mean that the company might go out of business. It's a high um, failure rate with startups. Um, how do we kind of know? I think there's, there's signs along the way. Um, so. You know, one of the first signs that you'll see is 
as you invest in a seed stage company, well, do they actually go to raise the Series A? Right? That's that's typically a good sign. Um, are they properly managing their burn? Right? Are they raising bridge rounds kind of here and there, or do they have a steady plan and go out and execute, raise another a set of capital, and kind of go out and execute? Um, so you can kind of see that along the way. Um, we measure for social impact as well. Um, so the same way you would report on your revenue numbers, we're asking questions about, well, tell us, you know, in the last quarter, how do you measure impact and kind of where did you come out? Um, so that way, when we're talking about the Series A, it's not a surprise of where the companies are. We should know along the way kind of how they look at impact. Um, now we've added the diversity numbers, um, you know, so companies in our portfolio report out on those goals and kind of here's where we are. Um, there's many signs kind of along the way. Um, in five years, and, and I think it's important to note, as seed stage investors, we're really there for not only the beginning, right, of, of that five years from the point where we do a seed round all the way up to Series A and, and even helping companies um, through that process of creating the pitch deck, finding the right value-add investors, um, that's kind of the chance we have an opportunity to work with them. And then they kind of grow up, uh, they get a board, uh, they get a Series A, and, and they have other investors who really help them from the Series A and, and, and further along, and that's kind of the OWL ventures and Rethink, et cetera. Yeah. Do you have a model that anticipates some rate of failure for your company? A absolutely. I mean, So what's that rate of failure? Uh, the seed stage, it, it really comes down to um, one-third are probably just going to be written off, right, mm -hmm. uh, of, of your investments. Um, and it's this is more of this the seed stage model, not necessarily caper capital, you know, hard and fixed model. But one third is going to be the general um, return of capital. Um, so you get your money back plus a little bit more. And then there's really going to be um, kind of the breakouts, right? Of um, hopefully that the five or ten x um, at seed stage, you are kind of you're really early in. Um, so there's going to be a higher rate of failure, uh, just because it's the first round. Uh, they don't typically have a business model. They're trying to figure it out. They're trying to acquire customers, and they're doing a lot, um, which is way different than if we were doing Series A or Series B. Um, but in general, we're looking for a 10x type of return and more, right? So obviously, if you look at the Ubers or larger companies in the portfolio, way more than, than 10x, but... Um, the model is that some companies are going to fail. We kind of know that going into it. Obviously, we're not investing in a company like that's the one that's going to fail, but these things happen. Um, and it's not because if the entrepreneurs aren't trying their hardest. Um, you know, we really do try to work with them. Um, but sometimes it's just either the market isn't ready, uh, it's way more harder than we all thought it would be. Um, things change as far as teams go. Um, so there's a lot of other factors for why companies don't work out. Of the 130 or so companies you've invested in, yeah. can you share how many have kind of closed the door at this point? I do not have that number. That's something okay. I would have to look that up. Fair enough. Um, talk about the education marketplace for a moment. Um, is this a healthy ecosystem? And we talk a lot about whether it's easy to sell to this marketplace. You referred earlier to you have to figure out who's actually going to pay the bill. Yeah. Is this a healthy marketplace? Has it been getting more so, less so? How do yeah. you how do you judge it? Well, I'll say this: 
we try to judge it from um, our activity level in the marketplace. And um, last year, about 40% of our investments from Camper Capital were in EdTech. Um, so we're still believers um, in EdTech. Now, since 2010 to 2015, it's pretty much 5x as, as far as the dollars that have gone into EdTech. Um, that's a lot of additional capital, and a lot of folks who, or a lot of investors, who might not be ed tech investors, but are looking at it from a new space, um, which is great for entrepreneurs, but also could be you know, a risk because they might not be as familiar with the space. Um, we still believe that it's healthy. Um, we are seeing some changes as far as the products we're seeing. You know, a lot of Me Too products, right? When you look at a math assessment product, it's been done before, right? So kind of what's, what's different about this? Um, when you look at classroom communication, right? You have um, many tools that are out there that are great tools. Well, what's different about this? Um, so I think that you, you, you begin to see patterns along the way. Um, and for founders, it might feel like it's almost harder to raise money, although there's additional, more capital than ever, uh, about $1.8 billion invested last year into EdTech alone. Those are huge numbers. Um, and that's, you're including both K-12 and higher ed in the 1.8? Yeah, in, mm -hmm. in full, full mm -hmm. uh, EdTech companies. Right. Um, so I guess, what does that all mean? Um, we try to look for unique tools, right? So um, we recently went to Magic K-12's demo day. Um, I want to say, and I probably should check, but I felt like we've invested in every cohort. Uh, in Imagine K-12. Um, in the most recent cohort, we saw a company swing education, and we thought they were great. They're, they're pretty much fixing, uh, building a marketplace for on-demand substitute teachers. Um, and the thought was if you can get quality subs into schools that might not have a pool of quality subs, or are kind of just putting in anybody in the classroom to, 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 to manage the classroom, that you'll have better educational outcomes. That's something new, right? We haven't seen five or ten of those type of companies. Um, so I think as an investor, you're constantly looking for, um, obviously, great companies to invest in, but different type of companies that are solving different problems. Great. Um, so. What do you think is a misconception that the entrepreneurs have about the investors in ed tech? <laughs> <laughs> Where do I begin, he says. <laughs> Man, you know... <laughs> I'll say this, and this is this is also it, it's a misconception, but it's probably the hardest part about investing in edtech um, because there's tools out there that are good for the teacher and they're good for the students, but they're not good businesses. Mm. And as I mentioned, kind of when we started the interview, the main thing that matters, right, or when you're investing in, in, in companies, is changing educational outcomes. But it's also, and I mentioned that, they have to build a solid business. And it's those two parts that make uh, ed tech investing, right? It, it's those two parts that you kind of can't have one without the other. You can't have a great company that makes tons of money, but it doesn't do the educational outcome piece. And you can't have a great company that does the educational outcome piece, but has no way to be sustainable. Uh, and I think that's, that's probably the, the misconception is that Entrepreneurs sometimes look at ed tech investors and say, 
hey, we're, we're great. We're kind of doing what we need to do as far as um, providing better outcomes, we believe. Um, but when you ask about, well, tell us about your business model or tell us about how you go from point A to B, it's not as strong as a story. And for that reason, you, you can't fund that type of company. Um, it's just, it's, it's tough. That's great. Yeah. And what do you think general venture capitalists? So, yeah. you know, whether they're the big guys, yeah. the Sequoias and stuff, or whether they're just people who are not devoted to the space. They haven't spent the kind of time that you've invested in really understanding this marketplace. What would you tell them yeah. about this market? Well, I would say that... Um, First and foremost, kind of what, what they care about is, is it a real market, right? Are there real market opportunities here? Um, and I think the answer is yes. I think if you speak to any EdTech investor, they'll tell you um, that there's real businesses being made in EdTech um, and that business models continue to evolve. Um, whereas, you know, 10 or even 20 years ago, you'd have a sales force going out to kind of sell to schools. That's kind of been replaced with this Dropbox-esque model where you give it away for free and then kind of have a freemium model. Um, so I would say that the misconception from other investors or non-EdTech investors is that it's a really small market. There's really kind of no quote-unquote wins to find there. Um, and it's just an overlooked market. Um, as a seed stage investors, we think that that's great, uh, more opportunity. Um, and what's interesting is you're starting to see some of the I think you mentioned Sequoia and other larger firms are investing in edtech companies. Um, Sequoia has done probably about four or five of our edtech deals mm -hmm. uh, for Series A. So that that's a good sign. That's terrific. Anything else that you want to add that we haven't really had a chance to touch on? Great question. Um, you know, I, I think uh, this is more just just personal of kind of why edtech is important, right? And, and um, you kind of go in every day and you kind of focus on investing and that's, that's the big picture, right? But um, at the end of the day, this is one way to have impact on student lives, right? And um, you always try to put yourself in your lived experience in, in, in kind of thinking about what you're doing day to day. Um, and I can say as, as a student who did computer science and struggled in math, um, I would have wished there was more education in the schools that I went to. A public school in, in um, Amityville, New York. Right. Of, um, I remember our our coding class was or word, we had a word processing class. Right. And I think about well, how well did word processing set me up to be a freshman in college for computer science? Probably not good. Right. So um, it's those tools like a Code HS. When we make an investment in a Code HS, I think it's great. But I also think about the students who didn't have that opportunity to have a code HS. Um, and I was one of those students. I didn't have code HS. I had word processing. But you still kind of have to make up the distance freshman year, right? And um, I think that technology can help those students, whether maybe it's not in the core curriculum, maybe it's at home, maybe it's at the computer science club. But there's an opportunity to kind of get folks to where they need to be. So it's in many ways, it's personal. That's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Ed Surge Extra podcast. My name is Betsy Corcoran, and I hope you'll check out our State of the Ed Tech special report 
You can find that at edsurge.com or by looking for the short link bit.ly backslash edtechfinance.